Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all today. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another day that we can gather as your people and worship you. Lord, it's such a joy to be able to find a place of refuge in the midst of a chaotic world. We thank you for our times together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the the place called Lakeside, this one small part of the universal church where you've allowed us to be and to serve and to use our gifts for serving one another to build up the body of Christ for you. Lord, as we open up a, a challenging portion of Scripture, I pray that you give us wisdom to properly understand what can be a confusing portion of Scripture. I pray that you give me wisdom to be able to articulate clearly the things that I've studied. And Lord, I pray you help me get it correct. And I pray for everyone here to have ears to hear and that as we move through the material that we don't lose sight of the ultimate issue is that one day you will set everything right. There will be a great day of the Lord where we'll stand in Christ. You'll judge those who have rebelled and are your enemies. But for us, we'll be safe in your arms. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our study today of Joel chapter 2, and we're specifically in a portion of Scripture that I introduced and began teaching last week, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Ultimately, I always give a brief recap, but this is a significant portion of Scripture, not just because of what Joel says, but because this portion of Scripture is also quoted by the Apostle Peter in one of his great sermons on the day of Pentecost. And so there's a lot here. And as we introduced this last week, the brief reminder is that ultimately this is a message of deliverance for God's people. In chapter 1, the book of Joel recounted that God was getting their attention by putting his hand of discipline upon them by sending locust plagues, which destroyed everything they hoped in, destroyed their economy, all their produce. They actually despaired of having enough food and drink to survive. And chapter 2 began with a dark warning of the coming judgment of God that if you don't repent, something worse will happen. Likely uh, an army from the north, perhaps the Assyrian army, would be sent by God to wipe out his people if they didn't repent. But in the midst of chapter 2, God gave a call for repentance, an opportunity of hope. He said, return to me. Come back to me. That was his pleading with them. And it seems as though that generation actually did so. And there were promises to them. But not everything in Joel was just dealing with them. It was also looking forward to what would ultimately happen in the future. God's promise was that he would fully restore and care for his covenant people. And as I explained as we taught through verses 17, excuse me, 18 to 27, it seems like he did that with the generation of Joel's day. But there are aspects of what he promised that we know haven't been fulfilled. It will ultimately occur in the future. And when it does, no one can undo what God has done. Verse 27 says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. In other words, God will forever seal them, no one will touch them, and we know that wasn't fulfilled in Joel's day, because Judah, the nation of Israel, has been wiped out many, many countless times after that. 
So Joel had the picture of judgment and deliverance, of warning and of hope, of darkness and in light. And as we began to unfold this text, Joel is pointing forward to something that would occur in the future. There's no debate there. There's a lot of controversy around these verses, but there is no debate that Joel was looking beyond just his generation and was talking about something that would occur in the yet still to come future. And if all we had was this passage of Joel, we could interpret it and probably come out okay. But as I began to introduce last week, because the fact that Peter quoted this, there are people that still today use portions of this prophecy to justify what they're doing in church. Dreams and visions and new prophecy, as we're going to read the text again, is that still going on? Is that for everyone? Is that for someone? Is that for no one? So as I outlined this section of Scripture, I listed it as the signs of Israel's future deliverance. Because again, for all the controversy, there is no, no debate. It is talking about Israel's future deliverance. And I introduced the first point from verses 28 and 29. It's this, God's Spirit will be experienced by all of His people. Again, I introduced this, I taught this last week. This is just a recap. But verses 28 and 29 say, It will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. It will come about after this, after what? After the descriptive terms of verse 27 when God is in the midst of his people when Israel will never be put to shame it's looking to that future day we believe from all of our study of scripture that this is talking about that period we often refer to as the great tribulation period that precedes the return of the Lord to establish his millennial kingdom all these events occurring together That's when this verse will ultimately be fully fulfilled. And while New Covenant believers are a part of that, the promises of Joel weren't to believers of the New Covenant per se. The promises of Joel were to the physical, literal descendants of Abraham. God is promising that one day in the future, as stated by Romans, all Israel will be saved. And in that moment, after this, these things occur. He just says, I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind, which is then explained. It's not really all mankind, it's all of Israel. Because it talks about your sons and daughters, your old men, your young men. But it's going to be a pouring out of the spirit on every aspect of society. No longer, as was more typical in the Old Testament, will the spirit only be something that is seen by the leaders of Israel, the kings like King David, or by prophets like Elijah even on the male and female servants, male, female, social status, it won't matter. So that really sets the stage for today's lesson. That was a quick review. And as I got to this point, I started, as I do, I normally I'm working on Saturdays, I started typing the next part of my message and I started going and I was going and I was going and then I stopped myself. Because what I started to do was answer the questions that I raised last week. I was thinking that. I was really caught up in it. And so I started going and I was doing verses and I was enjoying myself. 
And then I decided, wait a second, don't get ahead of yourself. I decided as I was typing that I needed to stop and I needed to finish going through the text. Then come back to those questions. Because I could go off on a side road and nobody would ever remember what the original road was. So I'm going to go ahead and finish my outline. And we're going to finish all of this text today. It's going to take a little time. I almost thought about stopping after point two. But I'm going to go ahead and finish. And then we'll come back next week and start addressing some more things. And the second point, again, is the second sign of Israel's future deliverance. The first is God's spirit will experience by all of his people. Second, God's supernatural power will be evident to all. God's supernatural power will be evident to all. Verse 30 says this, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. It's jarring. I will display. God is setting the agenda. God is the one who is promising and acting in these future events. God is telling us what will occur in the future during the time of Israel's restoration. You could call it Israel's vindication. And we know it will come to pass because God said, I will. And it's really hard if you spend time thinking about it to wrap our minds around the full scope of what this is like. He said, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. In other words, God is going to not just be dealing in terms of the things that occur. You've watched the playing out of human events and they're just the natural events are disastrous. This is God intervening. God will display wonders, powerful signs. It's going to be clear that God is the one at work. Even though unbelievers may still be blind to it, God is making it clear that what's going to happen, what I'm going to put on display, is not just some natural phenomenon. And he says it's going to be in the sky and on the earth. In other words, the day-to-day affairs of man are going to reflect this. But also, if you look up into the heavens, you're going to see these things. And again, he's already painted a picture of a supernatural time. People dreaming dreams. People having visions. Men and women prophesying. In the midst of this supernatural activity of the Spirit, God is going to step in and display wonders of a supernatural nature. What will it be? We don't know for certain, but with piecing together scriptures, we can get ideas of what might be going on. He specifically mentions blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Now, these are things that will be seen on the earth. The humanity that's living at the time will see it and experience it. Most commentators point back to what happened with Egypt. Because there's similarities when God supernaturally intervened to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. For example, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17 and 18, thus says the Lord, by this, it's actually verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. In other words, water turning to blood was an aspect of that judgment. Perhaps some of that will be occurring. Exodus chapter 9, verse 23. Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire rained down to the earth. 
And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So there's an aspect, perhaps, that some of those type of supernatural activities of God are in play. But likely, in addition to that, some of this is just reflecting the horrors of the catastrophic destruction that's going to be wrought by wars that are coming. I'm going to read a few passages from the book of Revelation talking about these future times. Revelation chapter 6, verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, verse 4, and another, a red horse, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. In other words, God's going to supernaturally unleash through angelic creatures a period of hostility that's unprecedented. The imagery of Revelation chapter 9 verses 17 to 18 And this is how I saw in the vision of the horses and those who sat on him. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouth proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. I truly can't comprehend that level of devastation and death. And we know ultimately there's a culmination, there's a great battle. Revelation 19, 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. I think Joel is pointing to these time frames. Wars of an unprecedented scale and scope, not just instigated by the petty, prideful actions of men, but as part of a cosmic spiritual battle where Satan is trying to still fight against the king of kings. Supernatural enemies empowered to plague humanity. And God himself working and exacting judgment. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. There's a picture of bloodshed in Revelation chapter 14 that I seen it for years, it still staggers me. Revelation 14, beginning at verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them in to the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. We can't comprehend this. I'm a student of history. I'm not a great student, but I watch the history of mankind. I used to, as a kid, be interested. I'm even more interested now as a believer because I see the effects of sin playing out. But we can watch videos. You can go on any of the places. You can watch videos of World War II or Vietnam or other things. And you see the fire and the smoke and the blood. So on the earth... God is saying, I'm going to display wonders. You're going to see this in the catastrophic events unfolding on the planet. 
But he's also saying, you're going to see things in the heavens. Can't even imagine how terrifying all this will be for those who don't know Christ. I believe we will have been raptured and be with Jesus at this point. But there will be people who during the Great Tribulation are saved, and I think even the believers who have been saved are going to be aghast. Verse 31. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Again, I can't speculate on exactly how this occurs other than in the fact it's describing a picture that's described elsewhere in Scripture where the sun does not shine its light in the normal way, which in turn impacts the moon, which reflects the sun's light. And it won't just be some random eclipse that happens because things rotated. It's going to be God at work. I've read it many times at different times of studying, but there's a passage in Amos chapter 5, verse 20, because some of Israel was looking forward to the day of the Lord, but they were looking forward to the day of the Lord, thinking this is when we're delivered, and in a sense it would be, but they didn't think they had to repent. They thought they would be delivered just because, hey, I'm born of Abraham. Amos said, will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light? Even gloom with no brightness in it. And Jesus talked about the same type of thing. Matthew chapter 24 verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and glory. Verse 31. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And the book of Revelation again talking about some of these same events. In Revelation chapter 6 beginning at verse 12 it says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free men hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Joel is talking about these very things. God is saying, I will display wonders. One of the wonders in the sky is the fact that the sun's not going to give its light. It'll be turned into darkness, the moon into blood. And despite their continuing rebellion against God, even the unbelievers are going to know, uh uh-oh. So again, in the earlier part of verse 2, He was painting a picture of judgment and saying, if you don't repent, this is going to befall you. And it was dark. And it was furious. And it was frightening. And this passage is dark and furious and frightening, but it's put here to be an encouragement to God's people. 
Because for them, they will have repented. They will have been gathered by the Lord and they're going to be okay. But again, this is all the signs of Israel's future deliverance. The Spirit will be empowering people. They'll be prophesying visions, dreams. God will be working wonders. The words of Jesus, the words of the Apostle John and Revelation, everything that the Spirit of God had recorded for us, it's all going to be coming to pass in real time. And that brings the third sign of Israel's future deliverance is that God's salvation of His chosen people will be complete. God's salvation of His chosen people will be complete. And again, I almost decided to to wait until next week because I really wanted to get into some other things, but I decided I would go ahead and address this now. Again, when I read the imagery of what Jesus said. And when I read the imagery of the book of Revelation, and Joel has had me reading lots of the book of Revelation, my mind can't really get wrapped around it. What would we do? I mean, we've come unglued because of COVID. What if a third of the earth's population died tomorrow? We don't have any frame of reference. Things are going to be Chaotic and crazy. But in the midst of that, Joel records a promise for his people, for God's people. Verse 32. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. One of my seminary professors wrote a commentary that I've been reading a lot. I've been enjoying it. And he has a great point that didn't jump out at me about verse 32. I read what he said and I'm like, oh, of course. But I didn't think of it. He did. But at the end of verse 31, Joel is talking about that terrible judgment that's coming. The great day of the Lord. And there was a comment at the conclusion of the warning section at the beginning of chapter 2, and it was a rhetorical question. Said verse 11, The Lord utters His voice before His army. And remember, that was a pagan army that He was saying, I'm going to send them to judge you if you don't repent. Surely His camp is very great, for strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? In a vacuum, the answer is clear. Nobody. But what is being said here by Joel, in essence, is giving an answer to the question that says there actually are some who can endure it. Not in their sin, but verse 32, it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. What can a sinner do one of God's chosen people, a descendant of Abraham, what is their hope? It's not the fact that they're descendants of Abraham, it's that they call on the name of the Lord. In Old Covenant language, that's accurate. The New Covenant simply clarifies how you call on the name of the Lord. 
Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord is calling on the name of Jesus. For us, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal because we're saved. We've called on the name. But if you know Jewish people apart from Pastor Steve, you understand their hearts are cold. I've witnessed to, I will will call him my best friend, I've witnessed to him since I was first saved in 1993, and I would say he is no more receptive to the gospel now than he was then. About the most reaction he ever had to the gospel was one day, years ago, he got mad at me because he said, you think I'm going to hell, don't you? I said, I don't have any opinion. I can just tell you what the Bible says about how you get to heaven. He's a lawyer. He's drawn his own conclusions. He understands the implications. But Joel, it's actually not Joel, it's God is promising that there's going to come a time that even with the current hardness, you go to Israel, the Jewish people there, by and large, are not believers at all. They're hostile to Jesus. But there's going to come a time when that land, it's going to be a remnant, But they will respond. They will be calling on the name of the Lord and they will be delivered. Because finally, the scales are going to fall off and they're going to recognize that Jesus wasn't an architect of persecution as distorted by people who became anti-Semitic because the Jews killed Jesus. Believe it or not, you still hear that type of foolishness today. They're going to recognize what the Jews of Peter's day recognized when he preached to them on the day of the Pentecost. And they're going to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Because they're going to realize Jesus is the Messiah. And they are going to respond. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And again, even for them, this isn't some magic chant. It's not some mantra. It's not somebody passing around a card. They have to turn with all their hearts, just as Joel's pleaded with them to do. Every time I see that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered, I think about the number of people, and I was one of them, that have been mistaught. And so they think, well, I called Jesus Lord, so I'm okay, without ever having repented of their sins, and truly Turn to Him with all their heart. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, the type of day Joel's talking about, days of judgment, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So from the standpoint of the original hearers of this, they had been shaking their fist at God and God judged them with locusts. They were devastated. They were destitute. They were despondent. And at the moment of their despair, God said, I'm going to send more judgment. 
I'm going to send an army that will make the locusts look like nothing. And you can imagine that those people were beat down even further. But they were told the solution. When you're beaten down by your sin, return to me. Turn to the Lord. And Joel is fast forwarding with this imagery of looking forward to the day when this is the culmination and the pinnacle and the deliverance of the descendants of Abraham will be complete and it can't be undone. Israel's deliverance will be complete. It will happen in the midst of terror and judgment and blood and doom and darkness and wonders in the sky and on the earth. But God's people will be untouchable. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Even at that point though it's not an act of the human will. It's God the one who's calling them. It's not purely the act of a human will I should say. God will have his elect gathered together. The remnant of Israel will be saved in its entirety during the great tribulation preceding the return of Christ. Joel's describing a gathering in Jerusalem where God will supernaturally protect them. I said it many times, God's not done with that geography. That place called Israel on today's maps, his people are going to be there and he's going to be there. And his people will escape judgment and they'll never be put to shame. And they'll be the survivors in the midst of the devastation that we can't comprehend. For the original beleaguered recipients of Joel's letter, there had to be an encouragement that one day God was going to keep all his promises. And if we could convince them to turn to the Word of God, it would be a hope to the Jewish people today who are still beleaguered and persecuted. It's one of the strangest things in our current society where culture has turned upside down and we work very hard not to offend anybody, that anti-Semitism is on the rise. Because for all of the mischief Satan makes by changing up the curriculums and colleges and academies and all of that kind of stuff, he still hates God's chosen people. It's an odd thing as you look at the world today the biggest offenders of Israel are evangelical Christians. It's almost as though, and we live on earth that's round, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but there's a sense in which you could take Jerusalem and all of human history is hurtling towards that point. Because that's where Satan's going to make his last attempt But that's where Jesus will stand victorious. And in all of this, Joel offers hope to the beleaguered, disobedient descendants of Abraham that if they'll call on the name of the Lord, there's hope for them too. So as best I can, I've tried to explain what I think that text is saying and what the original recipients would have been thinking But as I mentioned last week, it raises a lot of issues because Peter quoted this very text. 
And he was explaining what was going on on the day of Pentecost. And that's caused a lot of people to wonder, has Joel already happened? You'd be surprised at the number of people that teach accurately about Jesus. Men whose teachings have blessed me in many respects, but still would say, everything I read from Revelation, everything I read from Joel, it's already over. You're not looking forward to that. It's already done. It's gone. And then, as I mentioned last week, other people look at the promise that Joel was making to the physical descendants of Abraham, and they say, hey, I've got visions, I've got dreams. Debbie and I were talking this week about someone that was telling her, I had a dream. No one at Lakeside, don't worry. No one in Faith Builders. But somebody saying, I had a dream, and they were using that dream to make, well, they were hoping to use that dream to make important decisions so when we come back next week we're going to start diving into what does this actually mean for us how do we take it how do we deal with it and one of the central things I'm going to focus on is is Joel telling us that we need more than the Bible Is there more to come? Is God holding something back from us that He's only going to reveal in these latter days with prophecies and visions and dreams? It's a provocative question. Hopefully by next week I'll figure out the answer. So, actually I think I already have the answer. So, let me close our time in prayer and I look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Dear Heavenly Father, we we look forward to the day when we're with Jesus. Lord, even this last week in my own life with the things that are going on and seeing the effects of the fall playing out in real time, I'm ready to be home. I thank you for the time that I have on the earth. I thank you for all the joys that we have, that I have in serving you. But Lord, one day we look forward to being removed from the sin and the death and the dying and the pain, and the tears. And Lord, we do thank you that when we look at your word, the promise you have for us is that we will be preserved, we will be delivered. You've called us, you will keep us. But in the meantime, Lord, we have to navigate our way on this sin-tainted chaos that is called the earth. I pray that you'll help us to rightly understand the lessons of the book of Joel for us. Lord, help us enjoy and rest in the hope of deliverance that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And even as we begin to look next week into the implications of this text and look a little bit more as to what Peter meant by talking about this text, I pray that you will use it to strengthen our conviction that the Word of God is sufficient. I hope that you pray that you'll use it to protect us from the lies of Satan and deception that is multiplying all around us, quite often in churches in the name of Jesus. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit. We need your guidance. We need your help and we need your word. And I pray that you'll meet our needs. 
with the abundance that is necessary and required. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.